Welcome to series three of My Life in Design, brought to you by the DBA and design-focused PR agency Red Setter. I'm Claire Blythe, co-founder of Red Setter, and this series I'm speaking to 10 more people shaping the world of design to find out what first inspired them and how they got to where they are today. This week I'm here in New York with Brian Collins, co-founder, sorry, I'll you're fine, Claire. Just, go, just keep going. You're good. Just, <laughs> good. Go read it. Your, your script. Claire has her has her notebook <laughs> open, and she's reading my bio, and she's awesome. Just just pick up. Okay, I'll just pick it up. You're great. Yeah, you're great. <laughs> Co-founder of Design Transformation and Consultancy Collins, Brian has won pretty much every major creative award there is. He's been named an American Design Master by Fast Company. Forbes magazine named Collins as a firm driving the future of brand building. At age, have named Collins as Business Transformation of the Year for the fourth year running. Well, actually, we've been named Agency of the Year. We were for the first three years that they had the award, they named us Design Company of the Year. And then this year, just a few weeks ago, they started this new award ah. um, recognition called Business Transformation Agency. I see. Which is how did you transform, change, evolve a business to take better advantage of its future? Yeah, um, okay. And uh, we didn't think we had a you know, a hope since we were up against, you know, all the, you know, the big holding companies and the giant ad agencies. But we submitted it, you know, if you don't enter, you you never know. And um, lo and behold, well, you could have knocked us over with a feather. Uh, They call us and they said, you've won our business transformation. I can't even get the words out. (laughs) Business transformation agency of the year. And we were honored. Actually, the, the dinner is on uh, in New York next week. And so, is it? Yeah, we're all going. I'm, oh, I'm, that'd be fun. Yeah, so it, it, it's an awards dinner. It's pretty, um, we're thrilled. Yeah, you should be. Yeah, right. and we're bringing, um, you know, our clients and our people. And uh, Yeah, great. It's, it's a nice affirmation that, that the work that you do is recognized by your peers. And, and we don't take that for granted. So Yeah, yeah And I'm really looking good. for an opportunity to... Put on a, I haven't put on a tuck since COVID, so there you go. That's always fun. Mm-hmm. It's time for dinner jackets again. <laughs> so this is one I particularly like. You're the first graphic designer invited to participate at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Yeah. That's very exciting. And you've been a professor at the School of That was of a Visual shock. Arts. I think they were drunk and they, <laughs> and they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> they made a very Open good a call. Flat. I had a phone book at a pub in Manchester and threw darts at it and they got my name. But, <laughs> but I went and uh, I went for about a decade. It was great. It was, um, it was eye-opening. Yeah, I can imagine. You know? It's been really cool. You've been a professor at the School of Visual Arts in New York City since 2001. Right. And just so people can sort of get an idea of the kind of clients that you work on, you've got Spotify, Facebook, Airbnb, Instagram, Levi Strauss, Coca-Cola, um. Hershey's, Microsoft, MailChimp, Dropbox, Twitch, Jaguar Cars, Nike, Disney, the list goes on. A fantastic client list. Brian, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. It's so good. I'm so, so happy to have you here um, oh, in New York and in our, uh, in our new offices in Brooklyn. Oh, I love it. It's, yeah, it's such a cool office. I love the library we're sitting at the moment. Well, we've, but... we've, like, it's growing, but we've about 5,500, I think as of last week, like 80... 83, 80, 84 books. So it, it, it's... Um, it's pretty impressive. It's, You've read most of them. Well, I've read all the ones that you read. There, um, there are some that you just look at, like, you know, like, yeah. you know, books about painting and and, uh, and architecture mostly. But we have a range of things that go from 
history and biology and pedagogy and mythology and science and yeah. biology and uh, marine geology and uh, and comic books. You know, um, Mark Twain once said history, supposedly, like, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, uh, but sometimes it rhymes. <laughs> That's <laughs> a great quote. That's a very good quote. Which means that, you know, a lot of the puzzles that people deal with today, even, you know, on the cusp of an explosion of AI in our societies, many of the things we faced, we faced before. And having at your fingertips a massive library that covers, uh, you know, a juggernaut of, of topics here. Yeah. Um, let's us explore the term called the adjacent possible. What's beside the things that we know? Mm-hmm. What's the thing through the door or up the stairs or down the basement or out the window that's close to what we know, but might shed light on something that we don't know that much about. So yeah. books are very powerful that Massively. way. And all of our projects start here before they start you know, Googling online. That's the thing that got me interested in design. You learn so much about everything. You don't learn about you learn about design, of course, but you get to explore every industry and every part of society. Well, at its best, design is about everything else except design. Yeah, you know, and, and so it, it enables you to explore like so many things. And I've been and my team and my people. We've uh, God in the, in the last two months. I've been in London, Lisbon, Los Angeles, Montreal. Barcelona, Panama City, Ecuador, and then back in New York. Wow, in the last two months. In the last two, easily in the last two months. That's pretty cool. Um, with client work, um, with being, being invited to speak places. And along those, you know, in that travel, your mind expands. You see things you've never seen. You've met people who you've n- never in a million years ever would think of meeting. And so, you know, you, you, when, once you start traveling, your brain expands and it, and it can't go back to the form it was. So, yeah. And I think... Books are just another kind of travel. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, you, they, the books can bring you into the past, into the future, to ancient civilizations or to civilizations that never really existed, like, yeah. like Narnia. And so I think that mm. kind of travel, whether you're in uh, rolled up in bed and reading a, a great book or whether you're, <laughs> we were <laughs> last week with Aaron climbing over the Andes, um, you know, That's above the cloud fantastic. line. You know, and that, that'll open up the top of your head. Yeah. So it's, it's, and design has allowed us to have those kinds of journeys and, and adventures and then come back and share them with the rest of the team. And they go off and they have journeys. They come back and they share what they've learned and what they've discovered. And, they, and we, it, it all becomes part of the work we do. Yeah, yeah, I love that. The travel, the mind expansion, it's, yeah, brilliant place to be. But, right, let me take you back to when you were... Please. A little boy, mm-hmm. I assume a little boy that you were when when you first realized design first existed as a thing you can build a career around. Was it when you were when you were little, or was it when you were older? Like, was there a moment when you realized design was a thing that you could build your life around? Well, I was, you know, I was raised as you know in the Roman Catholic Church as you know as an Irish Catholic, uh-huh. and I think you are, and many of the rituals are about going to church inspire a sense of aesthetic arrest. Yes. You know, and uh, if you're Briton, you're, whether you're Catholic or, or, or Episcopalian or Protestant or, or, or whatnot, or, or Jewish or, or um, you practice Islam or whatever, you're Buddhist, these places are the churches, synagogues, mosques, temples, mm. are places that elevate you 
above the prosaic, above the everyday. And they're designed to do that. And I recognize that, you know, I remember going to church was a very elevated visual experience. Yeah. You walk through the nave, which is the central aisle, and on your left and right are massive stained glass windows that comes right out of the Middle Ages because at the time, Middle Ages, you know, the um, the congregation was illiterate and meant it to, to be that way. Yeah. And so the story of the church had to be communicated almost entirely visually. Yeah. And through storytelling. So the burden is placed on these extraordinary windows, the stations of the cross, and all of the visuality of, of, of the church. And then, of course, you have the, you have the choir, and you have the music, and you have the sense, and you have the, the light, and you certainly have the prayers. And all of these things are designed to put you in a certain elevated state, hopefully yeah. to make you aware of the, the, uh, the, the uh, transcendent. So I guess I was born into aesthetic arrest. I was very aware of what it was like going to church and very aware of the impact of these images on me because it was not my house. It was not my school. It was not where we worked. It wasn't my neighborhood. Yeah. Um, it was someplace else and it was crafted. It used uh, communication. Uh, it used architecture. It mm-hmm. used sound and music. All of that purposely designed to put you hopefully in a, in a, in a state of, of transcendence, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was, you know, as I said, I was, I guess, born into a knowledge of aesthetic arrest. But I like the fact that you actually recognize that and you could see what was going on there. And you can't help but to... any kid. Yeah. You, you have to behave yourself. It's quiet. You have to sit up. You have to sit in the aisle. You know, and those are all protocols. If, if you aren't aware, all the protocols around your behavior make you pay attention. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so I guess that, so my first exposure to understanding that design was the intentionality of those spaces. Yeah. And the music and the liturgy and the... And the, and the language, you know, the elevated language, um, just, 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 you know, I, I was just very aware of it. Now, if I were to answer your question, when was I aware of design design? I was very lucky having grown up in Massachusetts, in Lexington, and in the uh, late 30s and the 40s, um, the founder of the Bauhaus, Walter Gropius, was invited to start the new architecture program at, the, at, at Harvard University. Mm-hmm. And um, many, and then later he started a firm called the Architects Collaborative which, with his graduate students. And many of his graduate students, when they were young, bought property in my hometown, which was, which, which was a colonial oh, uh, interesting. town. And so they started building these modernist experiments. You know, I've said this before. It was, it was as if um, you know, my colonial town had been ambushed by the Jetsons. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, the mid-century intersecting rectangles of you know, the international style showed up. You know, mm. a few blocks away from Cape Houses. <laughs> and it was startling to me. And one of our neighbors was an architect who worked for Walter Gropius and brought me into his office. I was about 10 or 11. And, and I had a peak experience in, in that office, seeing these architects working on projects, you know, around the world. Seeing my first uh, giant Aramecco print on a stretcher, that first Luxo lamp, my oh, first wow. scoop chair. Yeah. Um, designed by, um, you know, the Eameses. And it, 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 it looked as if the future had arrived about 50 years out of schedule. Yeah. So that's when I, that's when I was introduced to the idea of design and, uh, and, uh, and architecture through, you know, that was fortuitous that I happened to grow up in a town. Definitely. With, filled with uh, uh, Bauhauslers. And did you, did you study design at school? Was it connected at school? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I desperately wanted to be an urban sophisticate when I was 12. <laughs> After I made my first trip to New York, 
And I'm like, yeah. this is where I'm going to live. Yeah. And at the first moment I, I did, I got, a, I got a great scholarship at the Parsons School of Design. And uh, I started my career here. And then it was the height of the 80s and it was pretty intense. Um, in what way? I've heard it was pretty intense, but... Well, it was, it was the explosion. It was the, the sort of the very height of the sexual revolution. Yeah, absolutely. Drug culture, dance, like music culture. Yeah. And, you know, what the students at Parsons did when they would go in the late 70s, we would go to Studio 54. Oh, and you've that, actually been to Studio 54? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm bit, so jealous. Oh, all, that, that's where the Parsons students would go every Friday, oh, Saturday, my God. Thursday. Oh, my, we, we were there all the time. Clubbing and the house music's a massive passion of mine. And Studio 54 is the epitome of that. that I don't think there's anything, um, you know, and we were, I, I happened to arrive in, 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 in its glory days and, and, and lived in New York during the time when it was thriving before the, um, you know, before the IRS came knocking yeah. for their money. <laughs> um, but it was filled, you, you could meet everybody. And, and um, from, good God, from Roy Halston to Truman Capote to David Geffen. It was like a casting call for a Fellini film every night outside. And they cast, they cast <laughs> it for surprise and diversity and interest and shock. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it was all done to, you know, a, a driving you know, dance speed at 185, you know, beats per minute. Absolutely. And so it was great. So it was endless dancing and drinking and drugs. And, yeah. And then, you know, all that stuff starts to catch up with you. Mm-hmm. And I don't say my school life started to interfere with my, uh, with my nightlife. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. And I went home one Christmas after my second Christmas. And I just told my sisters and my parents about who I met and where I was going. And I was offered a job and I wanted to leave school. And my parents said, absolutely not. You're moving back home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to finish up here uh, in Boston. So I moved in with my grandparents who, who, uh, who lived in Boston. And oh, I, wow. And I, and I uh, went to the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. In uh, in Boston, that's where I finished up, and it was uh, the best thing I ever did. I, really? I, I got out, yeah, I got out of New York before AIDS exploded. Wow, yeah, absolutely. You know, and so many of my friends passed. You know, who would? Wow. In, who in New York, and, and yeah, of course in Boston and and Chicago and Los Angeles and and, and, and everywhere. But I was. Um, uh, oh, that's so good. That's yeah, so we we I you know, and so so, I, so that's why yeah. So I, I finished. I, I went to the Massachusetts College of Art for uh, for for my last two years. When you finished there, what was your plan? Did you, was your plan always to set up your own at some point? Did you want to you know, get a local job? What it's interesting. There? There's a writer who I admire. His name is Bill McKibben. Um, I've known Bill since we were 10. Mm-hmm. And Bill became the editor, after high school, became the editor of the Harvard Crimson. Then he went to the New Yorker. And he wrote probably the seminal book on global warming called The End of Nature. He wrote it in the, um, in the mid-1980s. Mm. Wow, really? Oh, yeah. I want to check that out. Yeah, yeah. And so Bill has become a... Certainly, an early and eloquent and can, and charismatic prophet about the looming threat of climate change. Before he became as celebrated as he is, and appropriately so today, he wrote an article for me or on me in our town newspaper. And I was seventeen. Mm-hmm. Um, I had won the oh, the class election to be class president that year. Yeah. In, the interview, in the interview, in an article he wrote for the, for the paper, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to have my own design company in New York. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, and I was good se- ambition. You know, I was 17. I, I, I found that article. It's somewhere in the office. We, we found that article uh, um, not long ago, and it was very clear what, uh, what I wanted to do. When yeah. I was, you know, that was 
Yeah, it was um, MR17. And so, uh, you know, in, in some way, I didn't, God knows, I didn't know, what, I had no idea what that meant. Yeah. But I was inspired by walking to the architect's collaborative office and, and seeing smart men and women and talking about structure and form and color and material and entrance and threshold and scale and balance and light yeah. and typography. I'm like, I can do this. I, yeah. was, and I, was, I was mesmerized by it. And then my trip to New York when I was 12, I, I knew I wanted to do that, but in New York City. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Was so where was your, what was the first role? Was it, was it in New York? Was it, I was looking at doing a bit of research into you and it looks like you moved over to Minneapolis for a while. I did. I went to Parsons, started my own studio. <laughs> when I was at school, I started to get invitations to do freelance work. And yeah. I, I was living at home with my parents um, after I graduated and moved back home home and I had a bedroom mm-hmm. in my parents' house. We had a small house. And I set up a line for a, like a phone line. Yeah. This is before the web. This is before technology. This is before the Mac. This is Wow, yeah. Yeah. And I I did you what you did, you you set up an account with a typographic agency so you get your typography and they could get your photostats for you. Mm-hmm. I bought a Luxo lamp and I bought a table and I put all my big art supplies, like my illustration board under my bed. And I had a and I had a drafting table, and I started my little agency in the, the bedroom I grew up in as a child. Wow, brilliant! And I, I was broke. <laughs> yeah. And then, I, and then I got a couple thousand dollars, and my and I needed a little bit more space. So my mom said, "Well, why don't you turn the garage into a studio?" Yeah. And so we emptied the the, uh, the garage, and I took my money, and I had enough room in there to have four people work with me. And so I added one person and another person and then another person. Wow, that's really impressive. In my parents' garage. Yeah, excellent. And it would be probably never even more efficient. After a year or so of that, my neighbors were, were like, Brian, we love you, but we don't want your parents' driveway <laughs> turned into a parking lot. Fair enough. And they, they really didn't say anything and, and, yeah. and they didn't mind. But um, but my clients never, uh, you know, we ne- they never came by. So I, I, I we, we literally for two years, I I, I, I ran my, my practice, my my company out of my garage and I never said I was freelance ever. Brilliant. Ever. So I've never said, I, I always had a studio. I always had a company. The problem I have with the word freelance is it begins with the word free. Yes. Very good point. And it's not. <laughs> it's not. Absolutely. No, 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 no. Recognizing your own worth. Very yeah. Important. And so I just, and I, you know, recognized that if I started a company that I could probably get larger projects. Yeah. If I behaved like a company and if someone answered my phone and if I showed up with a couple people, that people weren't quite sure how many people I actually had working with me. And I you know, didn't know that I only had two people working yeah. with me. Yeah, but we started winning interesting projects for, for, for large companies like John Hancock, for uh-huh. Digital Equipment Corporation, you know, and for the Perkins School for the Blind. And wow. those early biomedical work was being done in Boston at the time. So we... We, we, we want a yeah. great biomedical company. So we were lucky, but, you know, we, we, we worked really hard. And I, and I had the benefit of my parents letting me work out of their house for uh, for almost three years. So what changed? What's the, um, so was it there you went to FCB? We grew. I looked at the kind of work that I really admired coming out of the Pushpin studio or mm-hmm. out of San Francisco, the work of Michael Vanderbiler, or out of Minneapolis, the work of Joe Duffy and the Duffy Design Group. yeah. And I sold my business to uh, a business partner who I who, who I had taken on, and he he wanted to go ahead and continue and uh, run the business, which he did successfully. And I yeah. sold him the business, took my money. I moved to London in 1988 oh, for okay. a summer. Stayed in London, 
uh, had enough money to kind of get a really cheap flat. Yeah. Where did you live? Gross. I can't, I cannot even remember. (laughs) But what I did is I would go and I found out that you get half price tickets to like the National Theater and you get half price tickets to shows in the West End. Yeah. And I would go every night. Oh, wow. Theater after the, the stuff I saw. I saw Chess by uh, Abba's play. I saw Sherlock Holmes. I saw I saw everything at the National Theater. Uh, I went to the Globe Theater. I, yeah, I, so cool. I saw, I saw everything in, in that, uh, the summer of 1988. If there was a play in the West End, I was at it. That's such a good thing to do. It was remarkable. Yeah. And so I became smitten by London and, smit- and completely hypnotized by British culture. Yeah. Um, and completely enamored. The Design Museum had not opened pre- previously. Uh, at the time, the Michael Peters group, um, although very corporate, was a very power, was a powerhouse player. Well, they've produced some of the best designers in London. In oh, I the met world. this guy. Yeah. It was Glenn Tutsell, who, I, who uh, a very famous designer who got called up. I said, I'd like to see him. I, I just did my own. Uh, I, I just started doing posters. I did a poster for the, for, uh, the Boston Office of the Arts and Humanities. It was my first piece in CA. And so I called up. Tutsal, what's his name? Gordon Glenn Tutsal. He was a very celebrated designer and uh, in packaging. Mm-hmm. And uh, I called him up and I said, hey, I just got something in CA. And he said, oh, I like that piece. Why don't you come over? I'm like, so um, I did. And that summer I, I called up and I spoke to designers who I loved. It was before the web. Yeah. And uh, I, I met as many people as, as I could. And it opened up the absolute top of my head, seeing the kind of work that was being done in London compared to what was happening in the United States, which is grim, lifeless, corporate, bloodless. I think what you've just said there, that you met as many people as you could, still is very important stand for today. Getting out there and meeting people and making connections and just meeting the right people. People are up for meeting you if you get in touch. You can. And the design, design museum. Like I, it, it had opened, I can't remember, but it was open when I went there. Yeah. And then they had an, a whole library of writing on design and philosophy and yeah. business and branding. Uh, Wally Owens had been, written a book called, I think, The Corporate Image. I yeah. bought that. There's another book by Peter Gorb. He wrote about business and design. I bought that. I was 28. I just, these books were not on American bookshelves in design. The, yeah. the things were in American bookshelves in design were like, uh, what was it? Uh, two color menus for Midwestern <laughs> private airports or like, you know, yes. logo a go-go. How to create three <laughs> color logos in your spare time. It was it was abysmal. Illiterate. Yeah, so different. It was just nothing. And London had understood and the culture understood the business that design was actually not a craft, but a profession. Yes. Like and it and a, a profession. With, with consequence and a profession with a legacy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's understood its history. Mm. And so, and plus, you know, I had arrived in London and one of my favorite typefaces at the time was Gill and yeah. to see all the subway systems, Gill. Was, everything just looked designed to me. Yeah. And so I came back re-energized and I said, I want to be as good as I can be. Yeah. And, um, and I had no idea what that, I had no idea what that meant. Jesus so how did you did you decide to decide to look for a role within an established firm? I didn't. I started my own company again. Right. We had grown large, uh, well, almost 17, 18 people. Yeah. Large for a yeah. you know, design company. Definitely. In, we, we'd moved out of my garage. And after I sold my business to uh, my colleague, I called my mom. I'm, I want to start this all over again. And I, did, I wanted to keep my overhead low. I got a little apartment in Boston and mm-hmm. I didn't live at my 
parents' house, but I reverse commuted from Boston out to Lexington. <laughs> and I started, and I m- m- went back into the garage. Great, really? Yeah. And I started taking on only projects where I could have a creative, interesting, original output. Yeah, okay. And so I got Digital Equipment Corporation back as a client, but I really wanted to do interesting work. Yeah. And I started doing work for the Boston Office of the Arts and Humanities. And and I started entering these things in in different design competitions, Graffice, CA, the Type Directors Club and, and whatnot. And all of a sudden, like, I started winning recognition in, in these annuals. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I might be okay. You know, you I, might I might be okay. I might, no, 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 no. I'm, you don't know. And I think yeah. when you're young, you, you kind of figure out, because I think a lot of designers have taste, you know, yeah. and they look at the work of their heroes that they'll look up to, whether it's an E. McKnight Coffer or A.M. Kassan, yeah. you know, or, or a Karita Kent or any of the people who, who they look up to. And they, they can look at their work and they look at their work and they look at their own work and they, and they want to make that kind of work. They just don't know how to do it. Yeah. And so that's where I was. My, the, the, the immensity of the, you know, the football field lengths between what I wanted and what I was capable yeah. of seemed um, untravelable. And, mm-hmm. and then I started entering these things. I looked at them and I said, okay, that's not bad. Let's see. I would enter it and it would, and it would win a bunch of stuff. I'm like, okay. Let's have a go. And then I, my work came to the attention of Joe Duffy at the Duffy Design Group in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Joe hired me. And at 29, I moved to Minneapolis. Ah, oh, wow. Okay. And so- there were about 11 people at the Duffy Design Group. They're doing, you know, um, and I think continue to do some of the best work in the world. Yeah. And they had become instantaneously sort of famous. They had won, I think, I don't think their records were broken, more awards the previous year before I went to work for them than any other design firm in history in the art directors club. Cause that's how you used to, that's how you used to recognize which agencies and which uh, firms and design studios were on fire. Yeah. You'd go to the back the ADC or Graffice or the one show and you would see the, the, you'd see like the Duffy design group and you'd see page seven, page nine, page 11, page 12, page 42, page yeah. 57, page 103, 106. And one year the Duffy design group had like, Endless. Wow. And no one had no one had ever done that before like that. Just came in and said, Hold my beer. <laughs> yeah. And um it's a Duffy beer joke, I guess. Um so um Joe asked me to join them and it was it was eye-opening at the time. Joe of course Joe was leading it. Mm-hmm. Charles Spencer Anderson had, had had recently left. They had been bought by the Michael Peters group, Sharon Werner, who's a dazzling, brilliant designer. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, was there. Todd Waterbury was there. We were both in, in our 20s. Todd now is the uh, chief uh, creative officer of Target. Uh, oh, okay, um, yeah, And yeah. now sits on the board of the Cooper Hewitt and yeah. highly influential. You know, Sharon just has, a, I think she has a retrospective of her work in in, uh, in St. Paul or Minneapolis. I was just invited to it. I couldn't go. I was overseas. yeah. And the influence of the Duffy Design Group at the time was profound in shaking up what had become a complacent, dry, corporate, stiff, lifeless design conversation. Yeah. The Duffy Design Group was creating stuff that was illustrative and rich and evocative and funny and witty and recognized that the history of um, design, uh, whether it was Art Deco, um, Art Nouveau, Russian constructivism, suprematism, futurism. Mm-hmm. They saw it as a big sort of closet they could rummage around in yeah. and try it on. Like you discover it, you're like your dad's or, or your mother's old 
hats, dad's old coats, and you put them on like, this is fun, and you you reinterpret them. And Joe reinterpreted, and his team reinterpreted those sensibilities with real panache. Yeah, okay. And real intelligence. And and you could sense it. Um, And compared to what I was enduring in Boston, which was the the, uh, grim lifeless corporate flush left picture on the left type on the right no illustration yeah you know we were we were spellbound by the grim self-important black and white maybe with a little red rule here sans serif humorless corporate design that had just invaded boston yeah okay it's Um, a great place to be to learn to break through all that and, and here was Joe, you know, off in the Midwest doing stuff that had life and humor and vibrancy and it was evocative mm-hmm. and had wit. Um, of course, the, the Bostonians dismissed it. It was, it, was, it was decorative. I'm like, fuck yeah. Yeah. And it was fun. And so, and it reminded me of my biggest heroes, which were this Pushpin Studios founded by Milton Glaser, Seymour Quast, and, you know, of course, Paul Davis and... Uh, Ed Sorrell and R.L. Blackman, so, some of the most and significant designers and illustrators from the mid-century had worked at the Pushpin Studios. And, yeah. And Joe Duffy's office was the place that reminded me most of that kind of exuberance and that kind of daring. Yeah, okay. Um, to, to kind of, you know, recognize that design had history that you could play with. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I can see that, how that plays out in yeah. your work today. In Boston, it was, it's changed. But it was humorless and grim and, you know, and they, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, it was a welcome relief to live in Minnesota. I lived there for five years. It's an extraordinary city. I think in, in the United States, yes. per square mile, there was more creative writing, illustration, typographic and design talent in that oh, city wow. than any other city in the United States. Really? I've got family over in Minneapolis, so we've been over. It's oh, it's a, a remarkable city. It is. It's a really lovely city. Oh, my God. I really like the, it. You've got world-class museum at the Walker. Oh, it's amazing there, isn't it? And a world-class theatre at the country. Sculpture gallery. Um, it's yeah, it's really, really city. lovely. Yeah. Dazzling city. So what took you from Duffy to FCB? I had been... I've been through five winters in Minneapolis. I love it. Oh, yeah, that's a very and, good point. And, yeah, it's... <laughs> 30 degrees. Um, really cold. Yeah, there are days you get your klaxon. If the klaxon went, you know, uh, went off three times in, you know, in a row, like three, 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 three. Yeah. Three. Um, it meant it was 30 degrees below zero. Oh my and do God. not go outside. And this is something I've talked about a, a, a little bit before, is that in the, in the fourth winter, um, I had... Uh, I think creative people might be prone to this thing. I, I talk a, a little bit about it, mm-hmm. which is, you know, everyone has, everyone has sad moments and they have happy moments. And my sad moment turned into a very sad moment, turns into the blues, and it turned into a depression. Mm-hmm. I was away from home. I'd been through the fourth winter. It was dark. And, um, yeah. and, I didn't, and I didn't lift. And it was like being in a hallway and the lights all go out. You know? Yeah. And you don't know where the switch is. You can't see the end of the tunnel. And you don't know who turned the lights off or if they were coming back on. Wow. That's scary. Mm-hmm. And as if all the happiness that you ever knew or would ever know was removed from your life and certainly from the world. And you couldn't access it. How did you move past that? Well, it was interesting. Um, I had a friend of mine who is studying neurology 
uh, he was a medical student and uh, finishing up his um, his residency in Minneapolis as a as a neurologist. Mm-hmm. And he recognized some of the symptoms and he suggested I should speak to a cognitive therapist of, 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 of his who he highly regarded uh-huh. and who was uh, Jungian and had the kind of imaginative yeah. framing that I liked. And I spent time with him. He recognized the symptoms and through a series of, you know, conversations, uh-huh. reading and some good therapy um, over the course of about three months that really, two to three months, it really lifted. Wow. And it, it's like I, I woke up one morning, the sun, I remember the day I woke up and, and it, it shifted. Uh, Beethoven was playing uh-huh. uh, on National Public Radio that morning. And I remember the light cuts coming in. It was the fall. Mm. And I remember I'm happy again. I, it, just, it just lifted. Wow. And at the same time, I recognized my time here is done. And yeah. I am... And I had an idea that I think it's time for me to go west. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a few weeks later, I got a phone call from a recruiter working for Footcon and Belding in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. They needed somebody as a, as a design leader, a design director on Levi's. I flew out there. They offered me the job. And I picked up and left Minnesota. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a fun role to get. Levi's it was hard because I made be... some very good friends. I, I was there. Some really, yeah. really, really good friends. Um, that was really hard because I, I missed them terribly. But they, they had a goodbye party for me, and they <laughs> and they dropped me off at the airport. And they and they came and visited me in San Francisco and since here in New York. Yeah. But that was hard because I made some really, you know, I was there for five years, and I made yes. great, great friends. That's but in San Francisco was, was amazing. But I think for anyone, for any creative person or any young person or designer who goes through that um, and where all sense of optimism perspective and you can't see the other side. Yeah. Uh, what I did was just, I, there are days I just didn't want to get out of bed. Yeah. You, know? um, you, I forced, you, you force yourself, okay, take, put your right foot out, put your left foot out, stand up, go into the shower, turn on the hot water, turn on the cold water, grab the shampoo. You, you, you just do one step after the next. Just and you, break it down. Just break it down. Just do the next thing. Just do the next thing. Do the next thing and do the next thing. Um, and know that it will lift. Yeah. Um, I know people who've been, it's basically what you do is you go, you're taken to another planet and that planet is a horrible, horrible place. Yeah. And I know people who didn't make it back from that planet. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, it's, it's not good. Mm. And so I think most good creative people, because we're sensitive to things like typography, color, light, form, texture, material, language, words, our sensitivity to find the difference between the right word and the almost right word makes us highly sensitive to aesthetics broadly. Yeah, absolutely. Music, flavor, taste, cooking. I know so many designers who are really good cooks, right? They love cooking. Yeah. That same kind of sensitivity, you can't shut it off when it comes to your emotions. Yeah. How you care about somebody, how you see yourself in the world. Yeah. And so when you're, if you're going to be open to sensitivity as an artist, you're going to be open to sensitivity in your, in your mind, in your yeah. soul, and in your emotions. So it's something that artists and designers in particular have to be very aware of. Yeah. And we need to be really patient with ourselves. Um and about getting through that yeah, and it's seeking important. help and support and assistance when you get through it. I've been blessed. The idea is when Mr. Depression comes and visits, he, he leaves his hat. Yeah. Um, and there's always a chance he's going to come back for it. 
but he never has. And the one thing that I know changed everything for me were, were two things. Mm-hmm. Well, there are two things that change it. Yeah. One, sleep is probably the most significant thing yeah. that I've done. Yeah. And I get nine hours of solid sleep a night. That's, wow, that's a really good idea. Nine. Yeah. Nine. Wow. It means you go to bed. Yeah, nine. If you can get 10, even better, at least for me. Yeah. You go out, you go down. I have a whole protocol. I turn the temperature down if I can, if I'm my own, if my own home to 60, between 60 and 64 degrees. If yeah. I'm, and if I'm a hotel, I get as low, as as cold as I possibly can. Yeah, I was trying to do that. Then I get two, I get three blankets and then I go down. I go absolutely down. I will meditate. I will listen to uh, Calm, which has all sorts of really I great love calm. sounds. It's amazing. It's really good, isn't it? I go down. I, I'm out. It's like going into a pool. You're underneath the water. Yeah. And you wake up and your brain has washed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing um, I've been careful about is I I, um, I have a lot of uh, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids in my diet. Yeah, that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Do you like Jay Shetty on um, Calm? Pardon? Jay Shetty. He does some of the oh, he does some of the meditations on calm sleep. I don't do any meditation work. I just listen to like. I just listen. Yeah, okay. The two one. There's like a sailing ship um, at night, and then there's like like rainforest in in like Ecuador. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's um, yeah. Just take two different ways. Yeah, I just yeah. That's really good advice. Yeah, and so for those of you who might be going through that, sleep, get some help, talk to your friends. Um, I had a really good friend who happened to be a neurologist, and he and so he had a, had a good and caring conversation about me. Yeah. And, uh, fortunately, I've, I've got very good friends um, who know you, you can tell the truth in ways to hurt, or you can yes. tell the truth in ways to help. And I, I'm surrounded by friends who tell the truth in ways that help. That's the place everyone mm-hmm. would like to be in, isn't yeah, it? That's yeah. the ultimate. But so you moved to. I don't want to dwell on that. But no, no, no. I think it's as really a important. I think it's important that we that we are um we surface these things absolutely no. creatives i was we did a thing at red set the other day on mental health and yeah. creative people are i think it was like 30 percent, 40 percent more likely to be bipolar to have yeah. um yeah. mental de- you know depression yeah. to, to to suffer these kinds of maybe not even suffers not well right we have word, to be it, open but, to the unexpected we have yes. to be open to the original we have to be open to these things and there when you're open to those things you know it is it's Pandora's box. Yeah, you let in lots of things. And well, yeah, you have to be just you have to be very conscious of how you how you take care of your mind. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about would be mm. tips for juniors starting out today. Yeah. beyond the design, and I think that's yeah. the most important thing you can offer someone, isn't it? Tips on how to handle their own mental health and how to come through that. And pressure and ambition and competition, all those things. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So. Gosh, I, there's so much stuff I want to ask you. I know we haven't got huge amounts of time, but yeah. so FCB, and then you were at Ogilvy for ten years. Is that yeah? Chief well, we were officer? we became agency of the year um, uh, FCB. Yeah. Uh, on our work with uh, Levi's, I, I got to work with some of the most brilliant advertising people. Yeah, ever. of course, and that must have been a great oh period to work with God Levi's. Almighty, just brilliant, brilliant writers, and I discovered them that you know really great advertising. People who love advertising love advertising. Uh, Chuck McBride was chief creative officer there. Paul Wolf, who okay. came from New York, was there. Um, Sean Mullins, who's a great writer. Suzanne Finnamore. Yeah. Um, Sean King was there. I mean, we we there the people there were dazzling. I hired um, Joel Templin, who started his own firm. There, Gabby Brink, who now has her own firm in San Francisco. The the, the talent that was there working on Levi's was 
dazzling. Yeah. And I worked literally within the bowels of both uh, FCB San Francisco and um, my anchor client was Levi's. And so we were in Levi's headquarters every day. It was uh, for three years, uh, practically working as their in-house agency. And we did like, we, I, I worked on television. I worked on environments. I worked on stores. We worked on packaging. We launched brands. And it was mm-hmm. three years of you know, behind the mask, doing that stuff, or like split bows, literally to, to 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 the blast furnace of fashion and 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 retail. Yeah. Um. So Rick Boyko called me from Ogilvy. He was co-president, chief creative officer of of Ogilvy in North America. Asked if uh, I was working primarily on Levi's, and then also I worked really closely on, on uh, with Jeff Bezos on Amazon.com, and yes. then and then Disney and MTV. So we were working on some interesting projects. Yeah. And Boyko called me and said, "Well, you know, you're primarily working on." Levi's, would you, um, we have Mattel, American Express, IBM, Coca-Cola, and their uh, client brands. list was dazzling. Yeah. And he said, do you want to do that around the world? And you want to be based in New York? So off I went to New York. Wow, what a good offer. Uh, it was an amazing offer. And I worked with uh, Bi- uh, uh, Rick, had um, set up a uh, design discipline. Uh-huh. He understood the importance of you know, large D design. Uh, which was about how to use design to, 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 to shape the future. But he also had a deep passion for small D design, which is what's the kerning pair that's going to work in this headline? Yeah, it's important. And so it's very rare to have a creative leader like that who Absolutely. understands that design is a, you know, uh, is about creating intentional change. Yes. Or as we say here, design is hope made visible. Mm-hmm. And yet have a deep appreciation for typography and and uh, line spacing and yes. form and, and and the power of language. The, the, the craftsmanship at uh, Ogilvy was astonishing, but they also worked on global brands like like IBM. And the, when I was there, the, the agency lost the IBM e-business campaign. Oh, did you get to work with Paul Rand on that? Was that yeah, actually, actually, I, actually, I have a book right behind you that I worked on with Do Paul you? Rand. Yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. He was yeah, amazing. I love his work. With Paul. Um, and uh, so we started that, and that ran for about 10 years. And that was um, remarkable. It was successful for two reasons. One, uh, Rick Boykio and the executives at Ogilvy knew that the advertising and the marketing landscape was changing uh-huh. and that what people were doing, primarily because of the rise of the internet, was far more important than whatever they were being told. Yes. And so the role of advertising, which historically been about promising, right, and creating fame, uh-huh. The second part of that equation was performance, which yeah. is what people actually did, what they touched, what they used, what they put their, you know, how, what the interfaces that they came in, uh-huh. in, in touch with. So there was a philosophical openness to what uh, design could do. Yeah. And I brought in people like Luke Heyman, who's now a partner at Pentagram, um, Michael Kay, who now has his own um, his own firm yeah. um, again with uh, Sylvan. Alan Dye, who now leads design for Apple yes. uh, in San Francisco. Rebecca Mendes, who who's went, on, went on to win the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award and the, and the AIGA medal and the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame. She was on the team, Barry Deck. Wow. I basically My hired re- people who would never in a million years would ever work for an advertising agency. And yeah. The, and the agent, and all of a sudden we were an engine. Yeah, what a design but focus. It was, it was unusual. It was, it was quite remarkable. So, I, um, so we did that for about uh, a decade. And then I realized, you know, that um, my 17-year-old self that Bill McKibben had interviewed had not been, had not expressed himself yet. Yeah. So that's Um, when you decided to set up Collins again. Yeah, 47. I said, um, it's time to do that. Wow. I was looking for a partner and uh, I started reading the writing of uh, Leland Mashmeyer, who's had a blog about design. He was working for an agency in North Carolina. 
like is, is writing about design yeah. and, and strategy and meaning and purpose and philosophy was just, it was, I, I felt I had a, um, it was like I found a fellow spirit. Yeah. I thought he was probably in his, easily in his mid thirties, if not late thirties. And so I asked him to, if he would, uh, would want to come to, to see me in New York, he mm-hmm. come, came up, flew with me. I mean, if he flew up to, to meet with me. Yeah. And we were going to meet at a, at a cafe in New York City. I got there on time. He says I was late because I wasn't expecting someone who looked like he was, you know, who, who looked like he was 25. Yeah. And so I'm like, where's this guy? And then he finally came over and said, hi, are you Brian Collins? I said, yes. I said, I'm Elon Mashmar. You know. And so I hired, you know, because he, he was great, I'm, you know, and we eventually became uh, business partners. And then uh, after about 10 years, Jabani called. Um, 10 years after um, yeah. Jabani called him, they made him chief creative officer and eventually turned him into chief strategy officer and then made him chief brand officer. Wow. And Amazing then uh, he launched, he, you know, he, you know, said, hold my beer to everyone and we launched Jabani. Yeah. Grew that company from, I don't know, working with um, Hamdi Ukulaya and the Such executives amazing there, work. Blew, blew up the company. It's now, I think, worth over $10 billion. I think when he started, it was maybe worth less than three. Wow, really? Oh, yeah. So it's it's like created a brand world that had never been seen before. Shoot, never. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was startling. And, mm. um, and so then uh, uh, he remained a partner here. And then he said, I am, my sabbatical is done <laughs> at Shibani <laughs> for almost five years. And he came back as our CEO. Wow, hmm. that's fantastic! And, he, that's... and then we closed up. You know, we we we, we finished his first year as returning as CEO, and winning up the business transformation company of the year. That's pretty damn good, yeah, isn't and, it? And Absolutely. And we were here having like muffins and yeah, talking, good muffins, talking about books and depression and yes. um, and and seventeen year old ambition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, how you get from there to what it is today? That's the studio you've created is fantastic. Everyone here is lovely as well. It's oh, cool. well, like you know, they're um. They're, they're, they're amazing people. You have people. We put the name on the company partly because it, was, it didn't cost us anything to register my last name. Right, yes. We had no money. No, you can, we did, we try to go, what is it, like electric cupcake? Do we call it? So, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you know uh, green periscope. God, yeah. no, we, it was all, at the time when we started, there was still, still that r- silly run on names. You know, it sounded like a, like a, like a, like a, you know, garage band from Portland. Yeah, yes. Um, you know, uh, you know, chocolate monkeys or God knows whatever. Yeah. Um, so I just put my name in the company, and, and here we are. And but yeah, um, it works. Well, it, it, it. My hope is that it's a, it, it's hopefully it's proof that anyone who does any kind of work, their name should go on the work. We started this from the beginning, and I wish more. Agencies would do this. Every project that anyone works on here, their name goes on. Yes. I don't understand why agencies. It's so simple. Yeah, it's these a people really good work point. really, really hard, and and their names should be on the work. So I'm I'm the enormous benefit of being able being able to have extraordinary people who have worked here. Yeah. Um and 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 continue to work here, and now people who've returned like Nick Ace or like Katja Braxton or Claudia Gladys team people who worked here several years before who are boomerangers. Yeah. And that's always a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Um, I'd love to talk more about Collins and your role today and that side of it, but I know you're Another short time. on time. I have dragons at the gate who are, absolutely. Who are, who are, who are um, yeah. need to be um, served a cup of tea. Exactly. Apparently. So let's, let's I, cut I, it off here. They but look terribly thirsty, but you know, definitely. you have to figure out what kind of dragon is knocking at the gate. Is it someone who wants a tea or someone who wants to you know, tear your liver out? It's a very right good now, point. Those, those ones look like, um, yeah. Everyone like, looks I friendly. Think, yeah, some tea and crumpets <laughs> I think are in order. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. 
and um, I look forward to speaking again. Thanks, Brian. Bye.